0: Yeah you're going to need them. looks like If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter three.. Chapter three will be in verse 14. And if you would, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him uh, and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for um, the worship that we were just able to participate in. And Father, I pray uh, that today that each and every one of us as individuals and, and even um, as uh, uh, corporately as a church, that today we would search our hearts uh, to see that we are not lukewarm uh, and that, Father, that uh, if we are, uh, that we would repent uh, and that uh, we would accept your invitation to come in and eat with us, uh, Father, and to, to rekindle those fires that, that once burned so brightly. Uh, Above all, thank you for Jesus and thank you for the promises he makes to us who have trusted in him. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So by way of review, um, Ephesus was the church who had forgotten their first love, Smyrna was the suffering church. Pergamum was a compromised church. The church at Thyatira was the church on its last chance. And Joe, last week, uh, taught us about, and, and I learned a couple things out of Joe's sermon. First off, thank goodness that you've got one educated member on staff, okay? Um, yeah. Uh, it's Sardis, not Sardis, right? So thank goodness for Joe, or y'all would have walked around going, Sardis. Um, so Sardis. Um, And and, and I loved how how Joe talked last week, especially about the key of David and about the fact that um, Jesus is the one who we answer to as a church. That that the church is open because Jesus Christ says the church is open. And so the church at Sardis was a small church, but it had an open door of opportunity set before them. And today we come to the final church of, of the seven. And perhaps the most famous of all the churches is the church in Laodicea. And the thing that I want you to see is that, that, that Laodicea is a lukewarm church. So what it means is there's no heresy in the church. There's no persecution in the church. There's no immorality in the church. What we see is that there's just mediocrity in the church at Laodicea. So look with me, if you will, in, in chapter three. Look at verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. So, so just for a moment, I want you to imagine that you've been having chest pain lately, and it's not getting any better. And so you set up an appointment to go see a doctor. And so you go to the doctor, you wait, you're finally led back to the room, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, you're waiting to see the doctor. Finally, the door opens up, you think the doctor's coming in, and instead the janitor walks in. And you look at the janitor and say, hey, uh, you know where the, where the doctor's at? And the janitor says, no, no, I don't. And then the janitor does something odd, right? He turns around, he grabs a lab coat that's sitting right behind him, and he puts it on, and he says, you know, I don't know where he's at, but listen, I've been working here long enough. I think I know a thing or two, so just call me Dr. Yanni Tor, okay? And uh, I think I can diagnose the problem, and so you start telling Dr. Yanni Tor what's wrong with you, And pretty soon, the doctor says, yeah, you've got a serious heart problem um, and you're going to require hospitalization. Now, it may not be a good idea to trust his diagnosis, right? But let's say you go to the Mayo Clinic. And there you're examined by the top cardiologist in the country. And as you sit down to talk to him, you see all of his degrees on the wall. You've read reviews on this guy. You've read articles and papers that this guy's published. And this guy tells you the exact same thing. That, hey, you have a serious heart condition. You need to be hospitalized. Well, at that point, you're you're probably going to trust that diagnosis, right? Because, I mean, you see his credentials. You see what he says. You know who this guy is. And so you're going to go, yeah, you're probably a little bit wiser than Dr. Yanni Tor over here. See, his credentials and who he says he is helps you trust him when he tells you hard things like you have a serious heart condition. This is exactly what Jesus is doing right here in verse 14 in this introduction, is that he's about to tell this church something very difficult, he's about to give them a very hard diagnosis, and he wants this church, he wants us to know exactly who's speaking. So in other words, this isn't the custodian playing doctor, this is the doctor himself. And so notice it says the words of the amen. Not a woman, amen. And notice he doesn't say amen, he says he is the amen. Amen is the biblical way of saying I agree, or by all means, or so be it. So when the people of God heard the word of God, they would say amen as a way of saying yes, this is true. So even today when we hear something that we agree with, we tend to say what? Amen, right? We need a few more of those every now and then in this building, amen, okay? And the word has a history throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 27, 16, we read, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother and all the people shall say amen, amen. Nehemiah 8, five through six. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Psalm seventy two nineteen, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. See, he is the amen to all God has said he will do. So whatever stood in the way of God's promises to you and I, right, our sin, Satan, they've been overcome by the blood of the lamb by Jesus Christ, amen, amen. He says that he is the amen, but he also says that he's the true and faithful witness. So what that means is that Jesus can always be trusted to do the right thing. In a word, Jesus embodies integrity. Integrity is defined as a firm adherence to a moral code or artistic values. Incorruptibility, the quality or state of being complete or undivided. So when it says that he's true, it means that Jesus is genuine. It means that he's the real deal instead of a counterfeit, right, he's Dr. Pepper instead of Dr. Thunder, right? He's the only person who has ever lived whose life was dictated by principle. So if the truth he spoke led to persecution, if the truth he spoke led to slander, and if the truth he spoke ultimately led to crucifixion, then so be it. So when Jesus says he is the amen and the true and faithful witness, the people hearing that could rest assured that he is not speaking harshly without cause. That they shouldn't take lightly what he's about to say so that his analysis, remember, he never lies. He's always true, his analysis of their church is spot on. Jesus never misleads, Jesus never misspeaks, Jesus never misguides, and Jesus never makes mistakes. So understand that this is the one who's speaking to the church of Laodicea, and this is the one who's speaking to us today, all right? So verse 15, Jesus says, "'I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, "'would that you were either cold or hot.'" So because you were lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on this text? If you're a church kids, you can say, yes, I have a million times. We've all heard this text. And no doubt you've heard this text preached just like this. That hot means those Christians who are on fire for the Lord, who they have a zeal and a passion for the Lord, right? Hot means the kid that just got back from church camp, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. Like, that's what hot means. And then cold refers to those who uh, are unsaved and they don't know Jesus and they're just indifferent to him at all. And so this creates a problem, though, when you preach the text this way. Because Jesus is saying that I would rather you be a cold, dead, unsaved person, than I would you be lukewarm, right? Does that make sense? And I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. In fact, it isn't. See, one of the things that Jesus does in every one of these letters is that he incorporates each of the community's features to communicate his point. So, so if you think uh, uh, about, about Sardis, for example, It was a city that was one time alive, but at the time of the writing, it was dead, and so Jesus says, hey, your church is the same way as the city, is that one time it was alive, but now it's dead, and so to understand what Jesus means to the Laodiceans is that you have gotta understand the topography of the region. So hot and cold don't refer to religious temperature or religious mood or religious attitude. Hot and cold doesn't refer to a believer and an unbeliever it refers to the topography. So hot refers to the well-known medicinal waters of Heropolis that were six miles to the north. The hot springs of Heropolis reach 95 degrees. The word cold refers to the cold waters of Colossae 12 miles to the east. So when Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold, the church is not being rebuked for its spiritual temperature but for its lack of works. So if you think about it like this, on a hot day, you're out working in the sun, uh, it's the middle of the summer, there's nothing more refreshing than a nice cold drink of water. See, the church is not providing refreshment for the spiritually weary and the tired. They're not providing that, they're not cold in what they're offering. But when you're sick, sometimes the best thing is a nice hot bath, right? And so the church is not providing for the spiritually sick. It was simply an ineffective church. So that's why Jesus says, I would rather you be cold and provide spiritual refreshment for those who are weary, or I'd rather you be hot and at least provide healing for the sick, but instead you're neither, you're lukewarm. And so since you're lukewarm, you're not beneficial to anyone. See, there's archaeological remains of an ancient aqueduct system that carried water from Heropolis, right, where the the hot medicinal 95-degree water was, and it came down to Laodicea. And so as the hot mineral waters would leave Heropolis and they traveled toward Laodicea on the way, what would happen? They would cool down. And then they would cascade over a cliff near the city where it would just spill out on the ground. And so the people were well aware of what would happen if somebody who didn't know better were to come in, see this water, and go, hey, I think I'll take a drink. They would get a drink, and that tepid, lukewarm water would make them sick. So have you ever seen somebody drink something that makes them sick? Have You ever seen that happen? What about if like, like you've reached to, to get a nice hot, hot cup of coffee and to find out it's lukewarm? When I was a kid, I remember uh, it was a Saturday and, and it was in the middle of the summer and I had a job, uh, but uh, I didn't have to work on that Saturday, but my father had other ideas. And so he drags me out of bed. I have to go to the feedlot for the whole day. And I remember we just processed cattle all day. I mean, we had a couple thousand head to process, uh, and I remember we still had about a thousand head to go. We all stopped, take a, take a break, cool off for a little bit, and we go in the office, and everybody's getting Dr. Pepper to drink. And one of the guys that worked with us sat down and was drinking his Dr. Pepper, and he got up, and I, and I don't remember what he went to do, and when he came back, he sat down and reached for what he thought was his Dr. Pepper. Grabs it and he takes it. Yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? Takes a big drink only to find out that it was somebody's spitter. And I'll never forget seeing him run out of that office and just like everywhere. This is what Jesus is getting at here. He says, listen, Laodicea, because you're not providing refreshment and healing, your lukewarm, tepid indifference makes me sick. It makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. The, the, the word in the Greek there could mean it makes you want makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. And if you're like me, there's just something about this imagery of Jesus lifting his cup, lifting his lips to, to what he thinks is a nice cup of cold water or a nice warm cup of coffee, only to find it tepid and nauseating. So the imagery here is at minimum a serious threat of divine discipline towards the church at Laodicea. And in verses 17 and 19, we we find out how this church got to this point where they're just tepid and lukewarm and ineffective. Verse 17 says, For you say I am rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich." and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So Laodicea was a wealthy uh, banking center. And after a a massive earthquake hit the place in AD 70, the Roman government came in and said, hey, do you need help rebuilding? And the Laodiceans had so much money and they were so proud. They were like, hey, nope, thank you very much. Do not need your help. Stay out of our business. We'll handle everything on our own. One Roman official has said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her resources and with no help from us. So they were very, very wealthy. They were very, very independent people. Laodicea was a fashion center. They were well known for their glossy black garments that came from a special breed of sheep that they themselves had developed. Laodicea was home to a medical school and was famous for an eye salve that people from all around the known world would come and purchase to put on their eye for certain ailments. And so in other words, it was a city that was very strong, very wealthy, very fashionable and independent. And Jesus says... That's exactly your problem. That's exactly your problem. You think you have all these things, but what you don't understand is that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Folks, the scriptures are are very, very, very clear that God will not tolerate any attitude in us that takes away from his glory. At the end of the day, God is not about you. He's not about me. God is about God, and God is about God's glory. And God's glory is the thing that he is most concerned with. In Isaiah 42, eight, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to a carved idol. In Isaiah 48, 11, he says, my glory I will not give to another. So in other words, no person on this earth will be allowed or permitted to detract from God's glory or to take credit for what God has accomplished, right? So, so no matter how big FBC Spearman gets, we must always remember that we didn't do it. Right? I mean, you know who your leaders are. Trust me. You didn't do it. We didn't do it. God is the one who gets the glory for all those things, And what's going on is that the Laodicean people had forgotten this. They'd become fat and lazy and spiritually proud of themselves and all that they had accomplished and they'd become blind to their need of what only Christ can give. Right, contrast this with the church in Smyrna. You remember what he said is that Smyrna suffered from material poverty, but what did Jesus tell them? You may be poor, but you're rich. Laodicea was materially wealthy, but Jesus says you're poor. So despite all their banks, they were poor. Despite their eye salves, they were just blind. And despite all their fine garments, they're naked. See, a big part of what it means to be lukewarm is to be satisfied with the spiritual status quo. So to be at rest with one's progress in the Christian life with little self-awareness that all of your spiritual life is from God. To be lukewarm is to say, what I know about Christ is enough. No need to press in any further. No desire to seek after God. No desire to run hard after him. No longing to pray. No desire to break free from the sins that entangle me every day. To just be satisfied where you're at with your knowledge of God. That's what it means to be lukewarm. So, so what does it look like in, in our part of the world? Well, I'll show you. To be lukewarm in our part of the world means to say, well, I was saved when I was a kid at VBS, right? I walked the aisle, did my thing, tipped my hat to him, got baptized as a kid. I go to church three out of four Sundays a month and I serve on occasion when there's not something better going on on my schedule. I read the Bible at church. I pray every now and then, mostly at church. And then just to be content with that and that's what it looks like. Sam Storms tells us that the Laodiceans were content with life as it was and not in the least ashamed or hesitant to take full credit for what little they had achieved. Is that us? I mean, as individuals, are, are we guilty of just doing the bare minimum in our spiritual lives, but then trying... Uh, to to, to take the credit for everything that happens? As a corporate body, do we just do the bare minimum and then not give God the credit for the things that take place here? And I'll be honest, I I told Joe this this last week as I was going through this, that it scares me that we could be Laodicea. I mean, we're coming up on two weeks. uh, In two weeks, it'll be a year since we voluntarily shut down for a few weeks because of COVID and all that went with that. And as we've kind of come out of this, honestly, we've weathered the storm better than a lot of places, right? I mean, we, we have. But is that because we're so awesome? Is that because we've made good decisions as, as, a, as a church or as, a, 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 as your leaders? Or is it because God is good and God's the one that's kept this church alive despite its leaders? <laughs> despite who we are. See, Jesus is saying this lukewarm church of lukewarm Christians are poor and they have zero spiritual resources. But he says they can cash in on the only currency that counts. And what Jesus tells them is this, is he, he counsels them in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he counsels them to make purchases in the area where they see themselves as self-sufficient. So he says, all these areas where you think that you've accomplished something or that you've done it and that you're standing on your own, you're not, so buy things from me. And he talks to him. I love it, Jesus talks to him like a businessman. He says, hey, forsake your old suppliers and come over here and do business with me instead. Like, I'm a better business partner to come do business with. So he says, buy gold that's been refined by fire. True wealth is not found in money, is it? Matthew chapter six, verse 19, what does Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves um, treasures on earth where moth and, moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, true gold is purified through fire, right? You purify it, you refine it, you take out all the impurities. So what Jesus is saying is that true gold for the believer comes when we are purified through the refining fires of suffering. It's when you know that Christ is all you have. We talk about this all the time, but it's not a matter of if you'll suffer, but when you will suffer. There will come a point in all of our lives where God will, yes, I'm sorry, give you more than you can handle. Because God wants you to completely depend on him for everything. See, true gold is knowing Christ and treasuring him above all. And the only way that spiritually poor people can purchase this commodity is through need. The only coin that matters in the kingdom of God is desperation. See, we don't pay Jesus out of our resources. Everything you have is already his anyways. He just gave it to you. It's on loan. We pay Jesus out of the depths of our poverty. The price God requires is that we realize that we have nothing to offer and that we are all completely at His mercy. So Jesus says, That's the only coin that matters, is realizing your need for me and crying out to me. And then He says, To buy white garments from me. So, in other words, hey, Laodicea, you may have your fine, expensive fabrics but you're naked, so you need to depend on me to clothe you and the only thing that really matters, which is my righteousness, is my goodness, is taking my perfect life and allowing me to give you that in exchange for your sinful life. You may have your famous eye salve in your medical school and these might help you, Laodicea, with your physical eyes, but you're spiritually blind and only I can apply the salve to blind spiritual eyes so that they can behold the beauty that never fails. And so Jesus tells them in verse 16, hey, I want to vomit you out of my mouth, but in verse 19, look what he says. We see that these aren't cruel words. He says, those whom I love, the people I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So they're not cruel words, but they're hard words spoken by a loving father. We always must remember is that hard words make soft people. The only way we grow sometimes is to hear hard words spoken to us, because that's what softens our heart. And Jesus says, I love you, I care for you, and the reason I speak words of reproof and discipline is because I love you, and that should be a word of encouragement to you and I. Now listen, if we belong to Christ, it is because he loves us that he will not tolerate us being lukewarm. That is a good word. So his hard words and his business advice and discipline are so that his children would be zealous and repent. That they would turn away from the things that they're pursuing and instead pursue Christ. And listen, love hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And not because people don't love us back, even though that does happen. No, oftentimes love hurts, especially God's love hurts, because it's uncomfortable. Because God is love, he will hurt us sometimes. He will cut us sometimes. He will cause us to bleed. His discipline is uncomfortable, and it may be painful, but it's always for our good. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. Joe read this this morning. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And that's a hard lesson to learn for all of us. But listen, one of the, the greatest evidences that you're growing in your faith is always what do you do after you sin. Do you turn and run to your Father who loves you and reproves you for your own good and your own maturity and your own growth or do you run away from Him? See, as we, we go along in this Christian life, as we, as, we, as we strive for holiness while resting in Christ's grace, we realize that when we sin, it doesn't separate us from our Father and we turn and we run to Him knowing that he loves us, that he paid for that sin, and then he calls us to stand back up and to continue to pursue him. And that's the thing I love about Jesus is although he speaks hard words, he doesn't leave them there, right? He leaves them with an encouraging word about their spiritual condition. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat with my Father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now verse 20 is often used in evangelistic rallies and tracks to call people to salvation. And and listen, I think the evangelistic use of this verse matches the spirit of that verse, I, I do but it's not the meaning in its proper context. So listen, if you came to faith in Christ because of this verse, praise the Lord. I'm glad that he used that verse to call you to himself, and I don't want to take away from that, but today I want you to understand this verse in the context in which it was written. So many scholars will tell you that Laodicea was situated at a very important trade junction, and so the gates of the city would be closed at a certain time every night. And so if you're a traveler and you're trying to go to Laodicea for the night, you would find the gates closed. Well, what would you have to do to get in? You'd have to stand at the door of the city and knock, and a guard or a watchman would come and they would let you into the city for, uh, for the night. And so this invitation is being dressed to believers who'd have been familiar with this imagery of somebody knocking to be let in and it's being addressed to those who have slipped into unrepentant sin and who have slipped into a state of lukewarm Christianity. So in other words, believers, this, address, this, this verse is addressed to believers who in their self-sufficiency has pushed the Lord out of their congregation and out of their personal lives. But Jesus, in an act of love and real humility on his part, is standing and knocking and asking permission to enter and to reestablish fellowship with them. Jesus is saying, hey, I wanna come in and eat with you. I I wanna be a part of your life. I'm standing at the door and knocking. I'm the guest that's come over, let me in. But but listen, it's also a reference to a second coming. And the door at which he stands is the imminence of his return. And so those of us who are prepared and alert, We will enjoy intimate communion with Jesus in the age that's to come. See, this verse is not written to unbelievers, but rather an appeal to individuals within the church to repent and forsake their spiritual half-heartedness. See, by doing that, we will experience fellowship with him on this earth and fellowship with him at the final feast in the messianic kingdom when Jesus returns to establish his reign forever and ever and ever. So Jesus is saying, if you're a lukewarm believer, I stand at the door, knock, let me in. I wanna eat with you. I wanna reestablish fellowship with you. I want that fire to burn bright again in your heart. I wanna make you a person that can offer cold refreshment to the weak and the weary. I wanna make you the person that can offer healing for the sick by pointing them to me. Open the door, let me in. And then he makes another promise. In verse 21 he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now we need to be very precise with this promise, okay? We need to be very theologically precise. So he says that we will sit with him on his throne. We are not enthroned with God because we are him, right? There was a recent clip two weeks ago of of a pastor preaching, and he was preaching about God revealing himself to Moses, and the pastor said this, that when God said to Moses, I am, God was essentially telling Moses, "Uh, I am, and as I am, so are you. In other words, the implication is that our being is somehow merged with God's being. See, we have to remember that that's that's wrong. That our union with Christ is a glorious spiritual truth that I don't quite fully grasp, and I don't think anybody ever will. But God, but Christ, is the only living Lord, and we are redeemed sinners who depend on him right now, and we will even depend on him in eternity. So in other words, we will not be enthroned um, with him because uh, we will be deified, We're not enthroned because we are God, but because He is. So although the scriptures say we will be made like Him, it just means that we'll be free of all sinful impulses. But our presence on the throne is a gift, not a right. Our presence on the throne is a gift, not a right. See, we're not there because we're awesome. We're not there because our works deserve it. We're there by grace and by grace alone, see this promise blows my mind and and I don't completely get it. But the one thing I do get, and I do understand this, I do get why I'm there. I'm there because he died for me. I'm there because he poured the love of God into my heart. I'm there because of mercy, not because of merit. That's why I'm there. I'm there to share his rule, not usurp it. And I don't get it. But the fact that Christ would make room for a sinner like me in his kingdom, the only thing I can say to that is thank you, Lord. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across to the Laodiceans. He's like, stop being so self-deficient and thinking that you somehow on your own have earned or merited your salvation that you've somehow earned or merited what's going on in your church and realize that the only currency that matters to me is desperation and complete and total dependence on me. That the only way your lukewarm heart is gonna catch fire again is only through me and through you letting me come in to eat with you. And so this morning, I think for some of us in here, our response in a moment needs to be one of worship. That as the band comes back up, that we need to stand and sing with all of our heart for the one who died so that we could reign with him. Not because we are awesome, not because that we've done anything to earn it, but because he's awesome and he saved us. Some of us just need to repent for being lukewarm and just doing the bare minimum and today realize that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and he's offering to eat with you. So today would you listen to him? Would you allow him in to rekindle those fires? To repent of just being lukewarm and doing the bare minimum and say I didn't leave here today pursuing him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. And finally today maybe you don't know Jesus. Would you trust in him today? See, the only thing that he requires is that you admit your need of him, to say you're poor, to say I'm poor, but he's rich, to say that I'm blind, but he can give me sight. I'm naked, but he can clothe me in white robes. See, the Bible's clear that when we do that, Jesus will save you. Jesus will change your heart and change your life, so will you trust in him today? So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for the promises that you give us, that you, Father, will, um, that it's all because of you, that we're seated only because of you, that we have a place in your kingdom only because of you, not because of anything that we've done or anything that we've earned, because of everything that Jesus did for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So so today, I I pray that that we could stand um, and sing with all of our hearts to Christ alone, who's done all these things for us. For those of us who are lukewarm, that that today that we would accept your invitation to come in and eat with us and to reignite that passion that, 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 that we once had. And for those who don't know you, I pray that today that you have saved and that you've changed lives that they would not leave here without grabbing me or Joe or a friend uh, and telling them exactly what you've done for them today. Father, thank you that, that I am seated with you because of mercy, not because of merit. May we rest in that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.